This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Comcast Business, powering possibilities. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live and our uh, Securing Cyberspace episode. My name is Joe Marks. I'm a Washington Post reporter, and I write the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter you could all subscribe to. Uh, I am joined today by, first, by two members of Congress. We have Representative Michael McCall, Republican of Te- Texas, and Representative Alyssa Slotkin, a Democrat of Michigan. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And I should mention, represent. oh, thanks. I should represent, mention Representative McCall was the founder of the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus way back in 2008. Representative Slotkin is a member of that. Uh, we're going to have two uh, panels today. If you stick around, we'll speak with uh, Bob Kalaski of Exeger and formerly of the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency later. And I'm going to ask most of the questions, but I hope you guys will join with some also. You can tweet those at Post Live. So I want to be- begin with, Ru- with Russia. Uh, Representative McCall, how concerned are you about Russian cyber attacks hitting the United States or NATO allies? as a result of the conflict in Ukraine? Well, you know, first to step back, there was a lot of talk that Russia had not conducted a cyber attack in advance of the invasion. Uh, that's just simply not correct. They, they did attack uh, the satellite uh, systems uh, to bring them down. That's why uh, Elon Musk brought Starlink uh, into the uh, picture to provide that, uh, the, the ability for Zelensky to you know, project around the world. Uh, but they also hit uh, a lot of uh, command and control systems, uh, the parliament, a lot of other uh, government entities, uh, but not with a, a great success. They were successful on the communication uh, towers and the satellite systems. Um, but with respect to threats to the United States, a very concerned. Uh, they have demonstrated the ability to do this in the past. I think Colonial Pipeline is the best example of that, a very destructive attack, uh, denial of service to bring down critical infrastructures in the United States. They uh, conduct two types of cyber attacks in my judgment. One is sort of an organized criminal uh, ransomware style attack and the other one's a more you know, destructive attack. They're both uh, equally capable of, of carrying that those types of attacks uh, in the United States. Ransomware uh, is very prevalent in the United States right now. and. Um, you know, they also attacked uh, Finland and Sweden after they agreed to be part of NATO uh, with defacing uh, their websites and with DDoS denial of service attacks. So they've been very active in the space. Yeah, Representative Slotkin, as, as Representative McCall laid out, you know, a lot of people initially thought that there wasn't a great cyber component to this conflict. As we're learning more and more, it seems there has been some. What's your assessment now on the role that cyber is playing in this conflict? Well, it's interesting. I, I agree with uh, Representative McCall that they, they have used it, but I'm sure many of us um, were thinking that they would have launched some sort of cyber attack, serious cyber attack in the United States um, in response to our support for the Ukrainians. And I just think it's been interesting that they have not done that. I interpret it as them not wanting to pull us further into the conflict, that as they've had some failures and some problems, um, they don't want to further you know, globalize the conflict and potentially risk us getting in in a more serious way. But the capability is there. It is not for want of capability, as we know. Um, and I just, I, I just think it's an extremely interesting 
um, conflict from a cyber perspective, A, because they used it as, as Representative McCall said, but also there's just a, a whole lot of different tech cyber currencies that are being used by the Ukrainians to help fund themselves. I mean, it's just a very sort of um, interesting place in history to have a war with so much cyber um, going on. So I, I think it's notable. Yeah, do, do you expect uh, do, do you expect things to stay as they are now that there won't be major attacks against the United States, or is that going to change as the conflict drags on? I I, I don't mean, think. I, I, I was, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. Uh, you know, I, and I think uh, Alyssa is correct. I mean, I I think uh, um, uh, they're very careful not to trigger Article Five. Um, they know if they attack a NATO uh, power. Uh, that could potentially trigger that. In fact, in 2014, after Crimea, uh, NATO did come forward saying a massive cyber attack would constitute a triggering of Article 5. Um, but I think the broader point here is there, there are no rules in the international space on uh, cyber warfare, cyber attacks. Would this legally trigger Article 5? But I think Putin's been very careful not to go to that point. And I think uh, to Alyssa's point, the an attack in the United States would, in fact, trigger that. And that's why I think you haven't seen that kind of attack, um, you know, in the United States. You know, I stood up CISA uh, into law. Um, so we're, that's, uh, you know, we do a good job, DOD and NSA on the offense. CISA is sharing information with the private sector. Uh, but, Joe, the, the real deficit here is on the international stage. Uh, my Cyber Diplomacy Act, we hope to get passed out of the Senate, which would lay basically an ambassador at large position to negotiate norms and standards with our NATO allies and partners uh, with respect to uh, what is an act of cyber warfare, what is an Article 5 trigger in cyberspace, uh, and it's desperately needed. Are you, are you concerned that that ambassador hasn't been appointed yet? Yes, I am. I, and I'm, I don't know why the Senate, yeah, they, they want to, they, they like the bill, they're just kind of holding on to it to put on a, another piece of their legislation. I think the State Department's going forward but we really need to appoint that ambassador position. Representative Slotkin, it sounded like you were going to weigh in. Yeah, I just I just wanted to footstomp Mike's point about the need for norms and standards, right? I, um, the average American just does not feel like they are protected from cybercrime. You know, I had all of my superintendents from my K through 12 schools in town a couple of months ago, and I said, Raise your hand if you've ever been the victim of a ransomware attack at your school. And every single hand went up, right? It's just become mainstream that, you know, people get attacked, their identities get stolen. And sometimes it's just for money, but it has the same effect on the public. And Mike's right that we have good offensive tools. Of course, we can't talk about them, right? So our, the public doesn't understand what we can do on the offensive side. And they still don't quite understand like the 911 line that you call when you have one of these major cyber attacks. So I think there's some education to do, but there's also the need for doctrine, right? So if, for instance, God forbid, the Russians or the Chinese attacked infrastructure, you know, our natural gas infrastructure in Michigan in the middle of winter and 26 elderly people freeze to death in their homes, what is the right proportional response for the United States? What do we do back to that nation state where those attacks are emanating from? We don't have real doctrine on this, and we certainly don't have anything like an arms control regime for cyber that lays out the rules and standards for the international community so that there's some sort of agreed upon framework by which we prosecute these new wars, basically.
You know, one of the problems that uh, we've always run into in the past when, when we look at norms and rules of the road in cyberspace is you can get allies to agree to things. You can't get Russia and China to agree to things. And when you do get them to agree to things, they tend to be pretty watered down and open to interpretation. Is there a way to get around that? And is there a use for these things if the, the nations who are perpetrating the worst attacks aren't parties to the agreements? Yeah, I think getting foreign nation adversary states to agree to anything, uh, particularly uh, cyber uh, uh, you know, space doctrines, I, I think it would be extremely difficult. Um, uh, you know, they, they profit off of this. You know, Iran uses it to get around the sanctions. North Korea uses cyber attacks to steal you know, bank accounts. Uh, Russians are using it to get around the sanctions. And it's in their best interest not to agree to anything. I, I, I remember, um, and Alyssa remembers this attack on OPM by China when they stole 23 million security clearances, including mine, and I'm sure Alyssa's, uh, very disturbing. And But yet there are no consequences, right? So I know just, you know, I got five children, right? To boil us down to very basic doubt. If my children, if there's bad behavior and no consequences, bad behavior continues. And I think they've been getting away with this for a very long time. And it's because we haven't quite gotten a handle on cyber as an act of warfare. Uh, cyber is an act of, uh, you know, when they steal intellectual property. Uh, what are the consequences? There are no consequences today. I think there will be tomorrow. So what are those consequences going to be? Representative Slotkin, I mean, we've tried sanctions and we've tried indictments. None of the things that have happened so far have had much of an effect. Is there something left in the toolbox that we haven't tried yet that we would be willing to try? Oh, yeah. I, I think that there's a lot of tools left in the toolbox, but it means the United States doing something that we don't do a lot or we don't like to do, which is sort of mixing our military policy with our economic policy and just making sure that people understand that if we want to stop, you know, we want to put some punishments in place, if we want to have consequences and build back deterrence on cyber threats, those consequences are not just about a military response or an offensive cyber response, but maybe your access to the international financial system is in question. Maybe the free trade that so many of our adversaries enjoy, um, they don't have access to. I'm thinking of China in particular, right? They have full access to the international system and none of the consequences when they steal intellectual property or allow cyber attacks to be launched from their soil. So I, for me, it's about um, doing something we don't do that often here in DC and mixing and kind of being very deliberate about the economic consequences of launching these types of attacks. Representative McCall, do you think, is is there stomach in Washington to impose those kinds of economic consequences on a nation like China that is a huge trading partner? Well, and I agree with Alyssa, we need to, we need to look at the economic consequences and both military response. Um, you know, um, I, I think, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to sanction Russia than it is China for a variety of reasons. One, we're not intertwined with their economy the way we are with China. Uh, we, and we are so dependent on supply chains coming out of China, that being, you know, uh, medical that we saw for COVID, rare earth minerals, and semiconductor uh, chips, sadly. And the chips for America Act, I hope we get that passed. Um, it would be very difficult to sanction China, just given uh, the inner uh, relationship in our economies of scale. And also, the other point that Alyssa's talked about is, you know, this whole uh, uh, central bank digital currency, the digital wine, uh, our concern is that down the road and also through Belt and Road, they're going to 
they're going to force a digital one in a lot of different countries, which will tie them to the China central uh, bank digital currency, which over time, if it could rise to the level of the dollar on the world stage, uh, could surpass and evade the SWIFT uh, sanctions, you know, the SWIFT system, where they could use this central bank digital currency to evade sanctions. And I think that um, technology, that, quite frankly, Russia's not there, and the inner, inner uh, relationship in our economies makes China far more difficult to sanction. I want to move on to what you folks are doing in Congress. The um, biggest cyber legislation of this Congress so far, and quite a few Congresses, has been the Cyber Incident Reporting Act, which requires companies in critical infrastructure sectors, such as transportation, energy, and so forth, to alert the CISA, CISA the Department of Homeland Security, when they uh, have a cyber incident. Um, is that going to be enough to really turn the tide on all of these cyber attacks and ransomware attacks? And are we going to reach a point at which the government is really going to have to step up its cyber regulation and mandate certain minimum uh, requirements for companies? Uh, Representative McCall? Great question. I, and I think that's uh, the piece left undone domestically. You know, I again, I stood up CISA into law. Um, we've provided a lot of resources now. I think they initially, was, do they have the capability, DHS, to do this? Capabilities have increased exponentially. The one thing they need as a tool is this critical incident response system so that when a, a company is hacked or attacked or ransomware, you know, the, the average uh, company, because of fiduciary duty, the shareholders are not, they don't want to share that information with the federal government. And that would be CISA at DHS. Um, you know, that's a knee jerk response. But if we had a mandatory reporting requirement that, uh, that could uh, basically sanitize as we do classified information, we don't care about the company's name itself, sources or methods. All we care about are the codes, the ones and the zeros, so that we can apply that across the board and across the country so that uh, companies can patch their networks to protect them from that kind of attack. One good illustration of this, Joe, was when uh, Russia launched the non-Petua virus. Uh, it, was an, a, it was supposed to be very targeted to shut down the ports in Ukraine, um, from the Black Sea. But what happened was it infected Maersk, which is the largest shipping company in the world, and it literally shut down the Los Angeles port for a matter of days. That's the kind of thing that, you know, you want that warning in advance so you can protect uh, companies here in the United States. Uh, Representative Slotkin, I want to get back to that question of, we have the Incident Reporting Act. It's, it's being implemented over the course of a couple of years. Um, is that going to be enough? And at some point, do we need to start mandating certain cyber protections for companies? Well, I think we're already kind of walking down that road, particularly with folks who are contractors for the federal government. I mean, it's no longer sort of socially acceptable um, to just let your cybersecurity kind of be a willy-nilly affair if you're looking for government contracts. And I think that's the, the beginning edge of what's just going to become normal, which is we're going to want to know before we do business um, what your cyber hygiene looks like. I mean, I've even thought about whether we create a standard and there's like a stamp, just like you stamp food organic, you stamp a business, you know, they've got good cyber hygiene. So you know that it's worth doing business, sharing your personal data, contracting with the federal government, whatever it is. So I think we're moving that direction. And I think that, that you know, this is obviously harder for mom and pop shops um, that don't have the cybersecurity expertise 
maybe don't have the money to hire, but for some of our, our bigger companies, they're already hiring private cybersecurity firms. They should. And I think that's going to become standard for our significantly sized businesses across the country if it's not already. And I think that's a good thing. I, I remember, you know, we all remember in the 90s when, you know, the World Wide Web was just starting out and it was like socially acceptable for your business to to get your web page made by your 14-year-old nephew. Um, and then at some point it that wasn't acceptable. You had, you know, professional companies that did your web page because it was out, outward facing. And I think it's the same thing with cybersecurity. It's just no longer okay to just have someone kind of do it willy-nilly. You got to hire out. Yeah, you mentioned mom and pop shops and you, you talked earlier about the, the ransomware threat facing schools. I, I checked with the firm Recorded Future before we did this. They they are they track this regular, they said 150 attacks that have attack ransomware attacks that have hit 150 school districts uh last year 50 some so far this year uh, a little more than a dozen of them in the united states um these numbers keep growing is there more that the government should be doing to help schools and small businesses defend from ransomware attacks yeah i actually had a bill that was signed into law that's like k through 12 Cybersecurity act that is literally helping to provide expertise and resources to our schools so they can learn how to defend the kids' data online. Um, there, there's a bunch more that we need to be doing. I think Mike was right when he said there's just no deterrence, right? I mean, if, you, if you're a, a group of folks and you're sitting in the middle of Russia or China and you carry out an attack and you succeed and there's no penalty, there's no punishment, then the next week there's going to be five groups that are going to do the same thing and 10 groups and more and more sophisticated attacks. We have zero deterrence in the cybersecurity fight. So I, I think we need to be treating it um, as sort of a, a five alarm homeland security issue. Um, and we're not, right? We haven't had um, our the, the attack on the colonial pipeline. Some people say it was kind of like uh, the attack on the USS Cole, right? Remember the USS Cole in Yemen before 9-11? And that at some point we're going to have our cyber 9-11 and it's going to wake everybody up. Everyone in America is going to say, what the heck have we been doing? Why have we been letting people get away with this? And I, I think um, um, we need to be trying to get ahead of that cataclysmic attack before it happens. Uh, Rosanne McCall, I mentioned earlier that you uh, co-founded the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus. That was way back in 2008 when you and Representative Langevin, the other co-founder, were just a handful of members that were paying attention to these issues. How do you think Congress's understanding of and ability to deal with these issues has developed during that time period? And are they, are you as a body in a place to respond to the cyber USS Cole at this point? Mm -hmm. uh, great question. So when uh, Jim Longevin was a great partner on this issue and my go-to Democrat, I'm gonna miss him, he's retiring. Uh, but when we formed the Cybersecurity Caucus uh, many years ago, um, nobody even understood what it was. And um, it'd be kind of like cryptocurrency today. A lot of members have no idea what that means. And, um, you know, I, I always say we were, we were into cybersecurity before it was cool to be into cybersecurity. You know, and since that time, Joe, we've been, uh, we, we formed the caucus to really raise, raise awareness to the members of Congress about how important this issue is. And I think, you know, I, I think Jim and I had the foresight and the vision to, to know uh, that this is going to be a major issue in, you know, now 2022. Uh, and now it is. And I think most members now understand 
um, because of the threat. They know what a cyber attack can do. And the fact, like Alyssa talked about, so many mom and pop shops now being impacted by this, it is certainly raised the awareness, a, a legislative agenda. Back in that time, we didn't even uh, have a cyber mission at DHS. Uh, we had these th the three bubble charts, right? There's DOD, offensive, FBI, investigation. And instead of putting this information sharing vehicle at NSA where a lot of people wanted it, and of course snow didn't happen and made it almost impossible to do that, we decided a civilian agency to share information with the private sector probably made you know the most sense. And, and that's how we came down with this decision to put it you know, at the Department of Homeland Security. And last point, you know, we did uh, one of the tools uh, CISA has are these, uh, these uh, critical incident response teams or CERT, these flyaway teams that can literally go in after uh, a breach, but also they can go and do diagnostic checks uh, to any small business that would like them to go in and sort of do an evaluation about their cybersecurity hygiene, whether they're secure or not. And uh, I would encourage people to, to use that. I want to jump to disinformation for a second. The Homeland Security Department, there was reporting this morning, is pausing, may abandon its disinformation governance board, which got a lot of flack from the right um, concerns that the government should not be the arbiter of disinformation. Um, starting with you, Representative Slotkin, good idea, bad idea, what role should government have in disinformation? I'll be honest, I'm on the Homeland Security Committee, and this this thing sort of popped in the press and then was reported to have been suspended in the press before we even got a formal brief on it. I mean, I, we never even heard officially um, on on this office. Um, and so I, I can't tell you much more than, frankly, than what's in press. Um, and obviously, even the name, I think, is uh, raises eyebrows, um, period. Um, I do think we have a problem, particularly with um, disinformation. And while it's controversial, um, I, I, the, the place to start for me is foreigners putting purposeful disinformation and misinformation on American airwaves, in American social media. Um, that to me feels like something we should all get behind. And yeah. while yeah. it's a much more murky conversation when you come to, you know, sort of freedom of speech issues for Americans, um, I don't see why anyone would want Russian or Chinese propaganda coming across our airwaves. So I think that to me is certainly a place we can agree and a place to start. Yeah. Representative McCall. I, can, I, I, you know, I completely agree 100% with what, what Alyssa said, because anytime you start trying to regulate domestic speech, you get into First Amendment issues and political speech, and it's always—it's just a, even the whole domestic terrorism issue. It becomes more dicey. I know when we passed, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, after 9/11 legislation that deals with, you know, foreign nationals, and it's a lot easier to designate terrorist organizations, um, you know, of foreign designations than it is, say, domestically. And when you do it domestically, you get into a lot of political problems and free speech issues. And I, you know, I agree with Alyssa that Secretary Mayorkas even admitted that the way he rolled this thing out was was inadequate. Uh, no members of Congress had any briefings or knowledge that this was going to happen. So I think that they did a, a terrible job rolling this thing out. Um, and I do agree that, you know, there's a lot of disinformation um, and always has been for quite some time coming from Russia and China and other countries. And that's, to me, a, a bipartisan 
uh, effort that endangers our national security, we have to be really focused on that issue. And, you know, as I take that, you know, what's happening in Ukraine, for instance, and the Russian disinformation, China disinformation, to back uh, Russia's interference in the elections in 2016, uh, to China's interference in the uh, in the uh, presidential elections going back in the 90s when I chair when I was a, a DOJ federal prosecutor, I prosecuted Johnny Chung, that led us to the director of Chinese intelligence and China airspace, putting money in his Hong Kong bank account to influence the presidential elections. So it's nothing new. For them, and then when you look at Taiwan and, and China right now, we look at what happened in Ukraine. We worry about Taiwan. I predict that uh, President Xi's looking at the military invasion as a less palatable option, and perhaps a disinformation campaign would be the way they would proceed. Particularly when you look at President size uh, term ending in two years, and there will be another national election. That's very interesting. Um, thank you very much, Representative McCall, Representative Slotkin. And thank you, everyone, for joining us here. We're going to be back uh, quite shortly with a second segment with Bob Kalaski. He is the Senior Vice President of Critical Infrastructure at Exeger, former CISA guy. Uh, please stick around with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. The Cypher Brief is a national security focused media organization that puts issues vital to national security in the forefront. And that's why I am delighted today to be talking about how recent events are impacting cyber threats to businesses in particular. And joining me to talk about this is Shenna Seneca Tarnish, Vice President of Secure Networking and Cybersecurity Product Solutions at Comcast Business. Ms. Tarnish, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here today. Thank you, Suzanne. You know, I wanted to start a little bit by talking about the cyber threat landscape that we find ourselves in today. We're just coming through a pandemic that disrupted how companies really do business, making it more challenging to ensure the security of their networks, their data, and of course their digital assets. I'd like to ask your thoughts on two things. One, how is cybersecurity needs have changed? And then how do you think the role of service providers has changed as well? So to answer the first part, Suzanne, I would say, you know, cybersecurity needs have changed post-pandemic due to the shift in assets outside of the traditional business perimeter. Um, with this distributed workforce, you also have distributed data. And businesses are catching up to extend the same data center level defenses that they had pre-pandemic to the distributed ecosystem they have post-pandemic. So it, in my opinion, this shift combined with the increase in devices has caused the most significant disruption to cybersecurity. And regarding the second part of your question, the role of the service provider has changed in several ways. Uh, Pre-pandemic, most businesses were looking to service providers to support their brick and mortar locations um, with connectivity and, and services in those, those buildings. Post-pandemic, there became a tremendous dependency on capacity and reliability for these businesses to support their employees and customers wherever they may have been. Um, so, and, and they were no longer in those brick and mortar offices. 
Uh, so service providers worked feverishly at that point to increase capacity for businesses to allow customers and employees to engage with them digitally inside and outside of the office. Let's talk about some of the actionable steps that companies can take to protect their networks. Now, what do you recommend that businesses do right now to adapt to protect their systems and to keep these networks secure? Actionable steps that companies can take to protect their systems and networks right now go across people, process, and technology. First, you need to make security an agenda topic in each strategic business discussion from the top down and back up again. You know, include security considerations at the beginning of your planning phases. Um, don't make it an afterthought. Uh, security risks and gaps and implications and practices should be discussed at every level and actively managed as part of strategic programs. And then second, you know, if the company does not already have a well-documented and practiced security program in place, you should make it a priority. Um, the program should include regular risk and vulnerability assessments and practices that include tabletop exercises that simulate what stakeholders will actually have to do in the event of a breach. Um, you, you change the mentality to when it happens instead of if it happens. And, and this prepares the business to act swiftly in the event of a compromise, which will limit impacts. And then finally, with technology, unfortunately, there is no silver bullet to address all the risks. And so you need to prioritize your investments by first defending the areas that have the greatest risk and impact to the business. Um, as you know, cyber requires defense in depth and determining which investments should come first can not only be overwhelming, but costly. So focus on technology investments where they can protect the most critical data and close known gaps. Just in the last minute or so that we have left, I really would love to know how Comcast Business is seeing the opportunity for businesses to improve their network security. Areas to improve network security, you know, in this digital world, it, it really requires an end-to-end -end approach, but it starts with the network. And, you know, with the network, you need to have architectures that aim to reduce latency and, and provide for those sensitive systems and applications while also providing tools to control access and communication to that data and systems and so forth. Um, security policies should be enforced with secure network solutions that can also segment traffic and limit access. And, and Comcast Business has secure networking and cybersecurity solutions to help enterprises improve their security in this digital era. And we have managed SD-WAN uh, that enables advanced security functions both locally on-premises and in the cloud, which allows this remote workforce to securely access systems and applications from anywhere. Shana Seneca Tarnish is Vice President of Secure Networking and Cybersecurity Product Solutions at Comcast Business. I want to thank you so much for joining me to talk about this today. Thank you, Suzanne. And now, back to Washington Post Live.
Welcome back. Uh, once again, I am Joe Marks. I write the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter for the Washington Post. And I am joined now by Bob Kalaski. He is Senior Vice President for Critical Infrastructure at Exiger and formerly an Assistant Director at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. Bob, how are you doing? I'm having a little trouble getting audio on Bob. I wonder if they're going to fix that for me. Can we try again? I hear you now. Okay. Yep, I think I just heard you now, Bob. So, uh, presuming things are, are in shape now, I want to pick up where we left off with the lawmakers with the DHS um, Disinformation Governance Board. Uh, you worked at DHS. Uh, CISA did some disinformation work. What's your take on the pausing of this organization? So first of all, uh, I, I think it is a con continuation. Can you hear me? Just make confirm me. Yep. It's continuation. Um, first and foremost, um, what we what I did while I was at DHS as I was working on this disinformation as it pertained particularly to what Representative Slotkin was talking about in terms of foreign interference on our elections and our democratic processes. And that was important work, and, and that work needs to continue because we can't allow foreign adversaries, we as a country can't allow foreign adversaries to unduly influence things that are important to us as a country. And we have to take um, information, bad information seriously as a homeland security risk. I think what the department was trying to do was enhance the structure by which um, they were going to deal with bad information as a homeland security risk. And particular areas that, that I think DHS still needs to do more work on under what name, whatever name they want to call it is, what is our strategy for um, making sure that disinformation does not lead to violent activity and cause attacks on the homeland? That has to be an element. I don't think the department has enough attention on that strategy. I don't think the administration does it at, at this point. And so working on that strategy, um, other areas that are important, making sure that that strategy accounts for privacy and civil liberties. And one of the things that I know the department was trying to do through the board was take into account the protections that need to be in place to protect privacy and, and civil liberties. And the third area that, that remains important is coordinated ways of the government working closely with social media companies to take down inauthentic foreign activity or activity that would is intentionally um, designed to incite terrorism. And so those are areas that are important. I don't care what you call the structure. I agree with everyone who says that the Disinformation Governance Board was perhaps an inartful way of doing that. But but I, I do think it's important that the Department of Homeland Security takes these issues seriously. I think that the administration takes these issues seriously as a homeland security threat. Um, another thing I got an opportunity to do a lot while I was in government is talk to our European allies who have dealt with this firsthand and the structures that they were putting in place to deal with this, particularly the European allies that were dealing with a more active threat from Russia, the, the Nordic countries, Finland and Sweden, um, what the UK was doing, what, what France was doing. And you see these countries setting up new structures, setting up new processes in, in developing strategies to make sure that the Russians and others can't cause harm to their national interests through disinformation. That's what the department hopefully will continue to, to try to figure out the right way to do. Congress should be involved in those discussions. It should be done in a transparent way, but, but we need that strategy. How are we gonna get from here to there though, given that you know so much of our populace doesn't uh, trust what what what's what's just doesn't trust information coming from 
the government when it's controlled by one party or another and isn't going to want to hear about disinformation depending on who's in office. Yeah. I mean, I think you start with the term disinformation, which is different than misinformation or malinformation. Disinformation is information, un, information that is factually untrue that is designed to cause harm. And the two areas, that, and again, it came up in your earlier conversation that are clear, is when our adversaries, whether it's Russia, China, Iran, where we saw in the 2020 election, when they are passing disinformation to undermine America's national interests, that could be a universal call that us as a country need to stand up against that disinformation. So too is disinformation that is explicit against First Amendment calls for violent activity. So, so let's start by, by setting the threshold high in terms of what kind of disinformation we're talking about as a homeland security threat. We, we had some success in doing that in, in the last 15, 20 years as it relates to the international terrorism threat. And let's, let's learn from that. Let's work collectively with um, public and private partners, let's us as a country to address that information. Um, we, we need leaders who are out there, hopefully from both parties, who are out there calling for um, addressing this information. Uh, so moving on to critical infrastructure, which is in your job title now, yeah. um, that's a really big category. Can, can you explain, I mean, first of all, what government means when it says critical infrastructure, but also where do you think the largest critical infrastructure vulnerabilities are right now? Sure. So, so you know, I, I'll talk from my former government perspective and then some of the observations I saw that I'd like to see some reform along the way. So government has traditionally framed critical infrastructure in the sector structure um, that's laid out um, in policy documents, most recently Presidential Policy Directive 21, which has 16 critical infrastructure sectors, energy, banking and finance, financial services, water, chemical, commercial facilities, et cetera. And we called businesses in each of those 16 sectors critical infrastructure. That, that was done intentionally to involve the private sector more in national security considerations. But, but I think what the government's done there is create a very large pool of potential critical infrastructure, which sometimes um, makes it hard to separate between what is really critical and what is something that, that's important from a business continuity perspective, but maybe isn't critical to national security. And what I'd like to see is government continues to evolve critical infrastructure policy is a little more delineation between the things that are really critical to the national nation's security, to our economy, to our communities, and really put the focus there from a risk perspective. You know, clearly things like colonial pipeline fit in in terms of critical infrastructure, energy facilities, electricity, substations, communi communications companies, big banks. And that's where we should start with the most important um, elements of critical infrastructure are um, share information, prioritize understanding vulnerabilities of those critical infrastructure, including the digital technology they use, the suppliers um, there, and, and start there. And I, I think from a risk perspective, it's not necessarily, shouldn't be the federal government's top priority, every commercial facility or, or every school out there. I mean, those things are important to communities, but federal government needs to put attention to continuity of functions, critical critical functions. And, and that's where I'd like to see, I'd, I'd like to see CISA do some of that work as it goes about defining what is critical infrastructure for the purpose of the incident re reporting legislation as well. And what's that work going to look like? Because one, we talked in the earlier conversation also about, you know, we, we finally got to the point of this incident reporting law where the critical infrastructure providers are going to start telling CISA when they suffer a cyber incident. 
you know, for these really critical functions that are affect national security, are we going to reach a point where there is some kind of blanket rule that they have to have certain cyber protections in place where, you know, the government is taking a more active role in ensuring that they're protected up front rather than hearing about it later? I'm a big believer that the government needs to have confidence that that is occurring. That does not mean that, that the government needs to mandate how it occurs or necessarily be involved in the actual process by which that occurs. But it is absolutely important in the government's, um, to, to accomplish our government's national security aim, the federal aim to protect its citizens, to make sure that the most critical infrastructure, I like the term that the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission adopted in, in there's congressional debate about it, but systemically important critical infrastructure to make sure that there's demonstrated cybersecurity practices in place for the critical functions for systemically important infrastructure and for the suppliers of systemically important critical infrastructure. And I think that's where Congress's attention should be. Again, you, you know, the Committee on Homeland Security was doing some great work in terms of coming up with legislative ideas uh, on how to designate that systemically important critical infrastructure and then have a conversation about what that means in terms of government information sharing, government relationships with, with systemically important critical infrastructure, and what benefits and burdens that, that those companies need to bear as being so important to our nation's security. Can you just, for the sake of people listening, can you, can you draw out what is systemically important critical infrastructure? What, um, one of the, I know that one of the things you spend a lot of time working in government is all of the interdependencies and the things that have these great interdependencies where a hack in one place is going to really ricochet all over the place. Can, can you give us an example so we can understand what that is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we started with what we call lifeline functions, communications, transportation, electricity, um, and water infrastructure, which communities rely on on daily daily basis. And particularly communications, electricity, and then banks. In communities, electricity and banks are things that if something happens, that can the impact of, of what happens can have cascading impacts across communities, can have real world impact. And so that's how I start to think about systemically important infrastructure. And then it's the hardware software control systems that, that enable that infrastructure to function that, that also hold some systemic importance because there's systemic vulnerabilities if they're exploited. And, and that's how I would start with the framing. You know, one example I was working on a lot um, at the National Risk Management Center at CISA was on uh, satellite communications and position navigation timing services and, and things like that that weren't immediately obvious the importance across infrastructure sectors, but, but an attack on uh, the GPS system or satellite communications cascades across multiple infrastructure and has a systemic impact. And by prioritizing, making sure that those services are protected, we, we can minimize the consequences when cyber attacks happen. You talked about the importance of ensuring that they have the right protections in place and that the government should ensure that in some way, whether it's requirements or not. What's your assessment of how the most systemically important critical infrastructure uh, sectors are are protected right now? Are we, is it an A, is it a B, is it an A minus, a C plus? I, I think the level of investment has increased and the protection against the plans and the protection against cascading consequences among companies that have been thinking this way for a while, a lot more resilience has been built in the system. Um, I, you know, from a risk reduction term, Joe, you know, I think about, you know, how much resilience, if something happens, how, how big an incident will that be? And I think that's probably more important than whether you can stop incidents from happening. And so my sense is we built 
and, and the companies have worked to build in a more resilience into managing the impacts of a cyber attack that happens in their system. They put more investment into cybersecurity and, and cyber planning, and we are in better shape for that. Um, how that then relates to the advancement in, in some of the adversary capabilities, particularly about uh, toward attacking things like software vulnerabilities and, and finding you know spot finding things further down in supply chains i think that's an area where where there's still some gaps right now which is why you know one of the things i'm doing right now sort of professionally my own job right now is focusing on sort of supply chain risk management supplier third-party risk management so even if you're so to recognize that even if you're good at what you're doing with on your own systems there's still some inherent risk by who you do business with and, and that managing that risk is important uh, your old employer, CISA, has been talking for several months now about putting shields up because of the enhanced threat from Russia. Um, are you seeing that? And what kind of shields up can you do in that couple of months time frame when you're talking about, you know, such big systemic risks? Um, so, you know, I'm not in government now. So what I'm seeing, and I don't have quite as good insight as I did a couple of months ago. I think, you know, the the... The reason we went to the shields up posture was because we were concerned. We, we know what the Russian capability was in terms of attacking our critical infrastructure, and we were concerned that they would use that capability. Um, Putin has certainly proven he's willing to do anything in, in Ukraine um, for a variety of reasons, as was discussed earlier. That, that capability really hasn't been brought to bear by Russia here in the United States or, or to, you know, here in the United States, although, you know, I, doesn't mean I still wouldn't be worried that it could happen, you know, the madman theory or fog of war or, or something happens that wasn't intended, like not patch, it could happen. So, so I think that shields up message was important. What that started with was just making sure that you, you companies were, were listening to their CISO and, and their security team in terms of having the best case of, of their cybersecurity in place. That presumably, those investments had been made, that presumably can continue. But we were also asking, government was asking at the time, companies to consider making some operational decisions to t even change how you operate, where you were sharing information, how you were connecting to different networks and, and, and do that because you wanted to maybe, um, you know, change your potential attack space during this period of time. I think those sorts of things can't endure forever. And... So, you know, let's use the shields up moment as a moment to get out the message to be on your A game and then start to think about what you can do longer term. So, so the next time we get to this period of heightened risk, you have less inherent risk. And that's the message that, uh, that I would be out there right now talking about. Okay, continue to, to remain vigilant in the current situation, but, but what does a less risky portfolio look like for you as a business in the future? I was interested in another portion of our earlier conversation focused on trying to establish international norms to reduce the the, the cyber threat. Is, is there any possibility of actually deterring Russian attacks? I mean, I, I think so. I, I, I think um, I think we found here in, in the last four months that Putin is not using every weapon he has. Right. And, you know, in some level, he's deterred from using different weapons and crossing, whether it's Article 5, as, as was being talked about, or whether it's other consequences that he's worried about, or he's just overextended. That's an example where at least I think some level of deterrence is part of the equation. Of course, other conversations of deterrence are how we would react if something happened. But, but 
nation states and every evidence I've seen is nation states are rational actors within their own rationality. I wouldn't call Vladimir Putin a rational man, but but in, in his own crazy belief system, he's probably acting somewhat rationally there. And I think the government, the interagency process should think about how we can create deterrence against um, you know, that rational irrationality of our adversaries there. And, and um, I, that has to be part of the cybersecurity discussion because that, that, that's a much more effective discussion than just throwing up your hands and say, well, attacks are possible, so there's nothing we can do about it. Um, you talked a few times about supply chain risk during this conversation. Uh, to close out, um, can you talk about where we are as a nation on figuring out what the risks are up and down your supply chain. I was interested that the um, Biden administration is now looking at ways that they can further limit uh, the Russian antivirus Kaspersky being used by private companies because it's still being used widely by private companies despite all of the reporting about it being a threat. How are we doing on that? So, you know, one of the things we have the capability to get better and Exeger's certainly in this business is gaining visibility around supply chains. And by gaining that visibility around questions like Kaspersky, you're knowing where the, those things are in the supply chains. Um, and, and so visibility and the enhancements in technology and analytic capability to advance visibility is an important element. But then the two questions where I'd like to see us continue to get better as a country, one is alternatives. Are there other things you can buy in your supply chain that are affordable to do so to replace the untrustworthy pieces, you know, whether we're talking about Kaspersky or we're talking about Huawei or, or Hike Vision or other, um, other companies that, that Congress has concerns about rightfully around, you know, we need to have alternatives that we can buy as a country around that. That includes then commodities that are being manufactured, critical, critical minerals and, and the like there. And then there needs to, if, if, if possible, if, if the financial elements aren't there, there need to be government incentives to stimulate more development of the alternatives and the affordability of the alternatives. And I think that's a that's an undone area in, in Congress. The Chips Act, in, in, et cetera, is, is a good start on semiconductors, where we're actually putting financial incentives into producing alternatives so that companies can replace their untrustworthy suppliers with affordable alternatives. That's the vision that, that, that I'd like to see in terms of supply chain health. Um, thank you so much, Bob Klosky, for everything. That was a fascinating conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.